and welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Kathy Fulton, Executive Director of Allen, the American Logistics Aid Network. Kathy has been leading Allen for over 10 years now, bringing logistics coordination know-how to relief operations ranging from hurricanes in Puerto Rico to the 2014 Ebola outbreak, as well as to the COVID-19 pandemic we're all living through today. The interesting thing about Allen is how much the private sector can assist governments and non-governmental organizations or NGOs in improving disaster relief logistics. Following my conversation with Kathy, I'll be joined by Dr. Ian Amiyu to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to the Freight Vine. Hey, Chris. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, this would be this would be fun. Um, I don't think we actually met face to face before, but I know your name and know you from some of the work that my colleague Jared Gensel does with you. So I'm excited to have a conversation. Yeah, it's uh, you know a uh, longtime fan of yours. What am I supposed <laughs> to say? First time caller, long time long time fan. <laughs> Um, so the main reason why I wanted to get you on the podcast is because all the great work you've been doing at Allen, the American Logistics Aid Network, for, gosh, a little over 10 years now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little about that. Um, how was it started? Why was it started? Give us a little bit of history about Allen. Sure. So uh, like a lot of nonprofits in the disaster relief space, um, Allen was formed right after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and really, it came out of the supply chain professionals and the logistics industry professionals who looked at what was happening along the Gulf Coast and said, you know, this is ultimately a supply chain challenge that we're dealing with. And we know how to deal with these challenges. We, we you know, move goods and products around the world all day, every day. Uh, why in the world can't we get water to the Superdome? Um, and so from that was birthed. Um, you know, Allen American Logistics Aid Network, um, and really from its get-go ha- has been uh, sponsored by, supported by, and run by industry professionals. Okay, so so you, it's not just another NGO. We are an NGO. We're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, but everything we do, all of our board members are industry professionals. Um, all of our advisory folks are, you know, either academics or industry professionals. We're really taking our cues from um, the capabilities and capacities of the industry. And what's really interesting about that is it keeps us up to date on current trends and possibilities. So we're able to leverage what's really happening in commercial supply chains and all of the upheaval that has happened over the past 10, 15 years uh, and really apply that to the humanitarian space. So it's, um, you know, it's a great way to bring uh, the industry to the humanitarian world and at the same time bring this, the challenges of the humanitarian world to the industry. So that's really interesting. Have you found that there's a direct applicability for private sector experience into this disaster relief space that wasn't there before with the NGOs and the government who typically were responsible for this? Were they were there gaps in their capabilities that you were able to fill? How does that work? Yeah, well, there are still are gaps, absolutely. Um, when you look at, you know, some of the, the research that, that talks about the amount of um, each dollar that's spent on humanitarian response, about 60 to 80 percent of that can go towards logistics and supply chain activities, right? So, so 
anything, wow. yeah, it's, it's a significant portion, right? But nonprofits in particular are not organized to be logistics organizations. Their founders get into the space because they want to make a difference in a particular mission area. Um, and so logistics is important, but it's not always funded. Um, and so Alan, you know, right. can bring those capabilities to bear and really help those organizations, um, you know, not necessarily in an outsourced capability, but in a supportive role, helping to educate them, helping to uh, bring, you know, resources, whether it's, it's services or expertise, um, whatever those those needs are, we can help connect the industry with the nonprofit community who, who needs it. Okay. Yeah, no, it se seems to make sense. Now, how has Allen evolved over the last 15 years? Because it originally started right after Katrina, right? And so is it still doing the same function or has, because I'd imagine NGOs and governments have gotten better. Right. And so has your role shifted? Has it gotten more intensive, less intensive? How has it changed? Yeah. And, you know, government went through an entire reform act, the post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act after after Katrina. Um, and so government itself has has reshaped how they respond to um, to disaster. Um, NGOs, same way. You know, there have been advances not just in technology, but in coordination and collaboration in in the ways in which we think about um, disaster. You know, there, I think that there's probably a lot more, um, a lot more understanding of people who are particularly underserved going into a crisis are going to need more help, uh, you know, than those who, who were doing okay beforehand. At the same time, crises, you know, bring about more, <laughs> more poverty and more, you know, uh, more people who end up sure. underserved. Um, but yeah, we've, we've evolved right along with, with, with that. Um, you know, whether it be, you know, thinking from our very origins that technology was going to be the solution and really all we had to do was get visibility of all of the, you know, all of the needs. And if we could just get visibility, then we could, then we could solve the problem. Right? Like every other supply chain. Yeah, all you need is a website. Right. Just, just a website. That'll take just an app. All you need is an app. All you need is an app. And and really, you know, I think even internally to the organization, that recognition was was one of our aha moments to say, okay, it is far more complex, you know, the nature of disaster, like any dynamic system, is it's incredibly complex. And so there are a lot of participants, you know, a lot of actors who are playing, um, some of whom are there every time, some of whom are, are not, right? And so you have to figure out who you're going to partner with, when you're going to partner with them, um, you know, what tools and capabilities do they have? What can you supplement that with? And then, you know, you have government who can bring funding and expertise and coordination and all of those, you know, kind of wraparound services. Right, right. So most people listening to this podcast are dealing with traditional supply chains, traditional logistics. So how is disaster or, re or recovery or what, well, I don't know what the right term is, logistics different from the traditional logistics that we all work in? Yeah, um, I, I always, whenever students ask me this question, I always start with, well, the metrics are different, right? Because mm -hmm. the metrics that a lot of our um, supply chains are measured on our profitability metrics, right? How much, right. you know, how much cost can you squeeze out of, uh, 
out of your supply chain so that you know you can be more profitable. Um, that doesn't work in a humanitarian context. You know, you're far more worried about speed and you're worried about outcomes. And, and really, honestly, the you know, the stakes are so much higher, uh, especially when you're dealing with you know rapid onset disasters or um, you know, catastrophic kind of, kind of events. You're literally talking life saving. It's not just, you know, you need to move a widget from, from A to B. It's, you have to get food and water and medicine and shelter to people who, you know, without it, it literally, it, you know, it, it's a life saving, it's a life saving logistics activity. Um, but you're using private sector resources and assets and, and companies that are used to traditional. And then you're shifting them to this other um, domain where speed and that is that a hard transition for them, or is that something that they naturally shift to? Because you're you're right, they're very different metrics. Yeah, um, I, I think that for the for the partners that we work with, they recognize that, right? Okay. Um, and and a lot, to be honest, a lot of um, private sector entities have have figured out that um, that crisis response. Uh, is something that they want to have in their, you know, in their tool set. Um, there are some who are, you know, certainly doing it for profit, but there are others who have said, look, this is, it makes good business sense for us from a, um, corporate social responsibility or triple bottom line or even just attracting, um, uh, you know, employees to, to work with us, you know, from that, that social responsibility aspect. Um, you know, they, they understand it. They can't always support it, right? You know, uh, it, we're looking at, uh, you know, I guess as we record this, we're looking at transportation that's just been wild, bonkers, you know, record breaking for, for months now, honestly, in the past, yes. you know, past few weeks have just been, uh, really insane. Um, and so it's hard for people to, to make the decision to say, you know, an asset that I could use to, um, probably make pretty good money based on what the, the some of the rates I'm looking at online right now are uh, versus taking that asset and um, you know and applying it to a humanitarian mm-hmm. but they're willing to do it when it fits the geography that they're serving or there's an opportunistic sure. you know backhaul opportunity or there's something that something about it that really fits in with um, with their corporate values so if we can align on those things, if we can align on geography, if we can align on corporate values, and we can align on, um, you know, the opportunity or the, you know, it, it's a fit right at that moment. Supply chains are always about the right time and right place. Right. So, and, and so those things have to align. Um, and it's out there. It's just finding it at the right time. Yeah. So I know um, having done some um research looking at the disruptions and when FEMA gets involved, for example, then the rates naturally, they tend to be known for paying higher rates and it can cause a, a, a ripple disruption across. So um, are you finding it harder to get carriers to come in to that? Because it used to be just the opposite. All the traditional retailers or, or um, companies would complain that it's sucking all the capacity out. Has that, has that changed over time? I wouldn't say that that it's changed. Um, you know, that is is somewhat of a self fulfilling prophecy. People think that the rates yeah. are going to be higher, so the rates are higher. I, I mean, that's right. you know, it's it's what a market does. Um, yeah. But you know, I think you know when we're able to uh, get commitments ahead of time, or we're able to again find that opportunistic, or it's so compelling, you know, 
I'm thinking of the, the dire situation in Texas with, you know, post winter storm in the water, um, that people feel like they have to do something. They, they're compelled uh, to, to do something. Tell me, tell me more about the, the Texas disaster, uh, that whole situation, because that came out of nowhere. Having relatives in Texas, um, this really caught the state pretty flat-footed. How did Alan respond to that? What, what were you requested to do? What actions did you guys take? Yeah, it, um, it caught a lot of people flat-footed. Um, I think the people who didn't catch yeah. flat-footed or anyone who kind of looks at how vulnerable um, supply chains are and how interdependent supply chains are, um, I think, you know, those of us who kind of look at those things on a daily basis say, you know, um, nothing surprises us anymore. You know, it's, at this point, it's just scope and scale. Um, but our response has been, you know, primarily um, supporting organizations who are doing distribution of bottled water. Um, that's been the, you know, the, the request okay. from, the, from the beginning. Um, and so we've, you know, we've helped. Uh, we have some partners who actually are uh, water producers, and so we've helped place some of their donations with food banks and others. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of um, a lot of people who have collected water. And that's a, an entirely different story about whether you know, collection drives are, are good or not. There's a time and a place for them. Um, but helping to move some of the, the water that is still needed. Um, that, that's kind of the biggest thing, you know, with Texas. But you also have to think about this is occurring on top of... <laughs> On top of a pandemic, right? Um, and so you have, you know, right. you think about the, the stress and strain that has already been on these community uh, service agencies, the food banks and the food pantries, um, who are already stretched thin trying to, to pump food through their, uh, through their networks, who are already, uh, you know, dealing with reduced, um, uh, reduced uh, um, donations of supplies. And now you have all of these new, newly hungry, right, who are coming to them or newly thirsty who are coming to them looking for support. Um, so it's really, you know, how can we how can we not just prop them up short term, um, but how can we make sure mm-hmm. that um, how can we make sure that we're restocking, replenishing for them? You know, in the future, we, we, and honestly, we, you know, we had a case just recently where someone was help, working to move water and we had a transportation company say, you know, we would love to do that if we know it's going to be distributed today. And my thought is, you know, people are going to be posting next week and the next month as well. You know, we need to make sure that, you know, all of that water that has flowed out of those warehouses and out of those distribution centers and out of those food banks, that they have stock for the next shop. Right, right. No, that that that's uh, interesting. Um, you mentioned something about collection drives, and uh, I know that that's a, a double-edged sword. So, can you tell us a little bit about you know how companies or individuals can um, can get involved in the things they should do and shouldn't do, and why collection drives aren't necessarily a good thing? Yeah, it's it's actually a, a bit of a hot topic with me, and. Um, Sometimes I, I get a little fiery about it, so I'll, I'll try to I, I'll try to be succinct. Um, yeah, so if you think about it from a supply chain perspective, for most disasters, um, there are localized or maybe regionalized disruptions, right? Um, and those are the disasters. We're not talking the the regional catastrophic events. Um, 
And so there are supplies. There is stock still in warehouses to support and to backfill and to, you know, to keep serving those communities, whether it's through the food bank network or through, um, through local agencies or even through retailers, quite honestly. Um, and so if we can get, mm-hmm. uh, if we can get supplies to store shelves, it makes a whole lot more sense for nonprofit organizations to provide cash assistance where people can go and have the choice that they want. Honestly, Chris, if, you know, if I've just lost everything in a disaster, I don't want somebody else picking out what I'm going to wear for the day, right? I want to have some right. agency over my life. But then you deal with, you know, the flip side of that is there is a time and place where the resources just don't exist. You know, Texas, uh, you know, we talked with the, the Bottled Water Association and, you know, they they were emptying warehouses. It, you know, spring is late, late winter and spring is the time when they're building up inventory for the, you know, the, all the barbecues right. that happen in the summer. And, um, you know, if those warehouses are emptied out, well, then you do have to go outside of the region to provide that support to, to get things in. But again, and, you know, I, this is a rabbit hole. I could continue going down for hours, but, you know, then you have to think, okay, is it the water is back on? Um, maybe I can't get it to the last inch or last foot of the faucet in my house, but does it make more sense for me to have, you know, a 16 ounce bottle of water or a five gallon or, you know, a a giant jerry can, you know, what is, what makes more sense? And so the individuals are going to do the, you know, the smaller individual serving sizes, moving that from Delaware, quite honestly, that's a, a huge expense. It's heavy. You know, it costs a lot. And the you look at the overall environmental impact, and it's hard to justify doing something like that. I would imagine that sustainability is not like the top priority. It's all about speed. But at some point, it, it comes in. Shipping little bottles of water across the country. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, and, and I'd rather see filtration devices or, or something like that that can have a longer-term impact. So can you give us an example of, um, whether it's Texas or not, a different example, perhaps, of one of your more challenging operations that Alan has faced? And, and to give us an idea of the different scale, different levels of, uh, of projects that you work on. Yeah. So, you know, they're all challenging in, in their own way, right? Um, but, sure. y- you know, I, I think the, the two that, well, there are three that stand out to me, really. Um, over the past year and dealing with the pandemic, um, it has just, it's nonstop, right? And so the breadth of time that we've spent working on mm-hmm. pandemic response is, I mean, none of, neither us nor any of our partner organizations or any business has, has dealt with this in our lifetime, right? It's, and the constant, uh, the constant disruptions, the constant change in you know, government policy, the constant change in, you know, do you have to wear masks or not have to wear masks? That I think has been one of the more, um, wearing, uh, challenges that, that we've had to deal with, more tiring ones. Yeah. Were, were you involved in like PPE distribution or any of that kind of stuff? What, what, what was your engagement with pandemic problems in, in general? So quite a few different things, you know, um, I've talked a lot about food, but it really has been the number one challenge over the course of the pandemic and supporting, really? okay. uh, yeah, supporting food dry, uh, food distribution, 
um, you know, getting trailers, refrigerated trailers to, to park at a, a parking lot so that, you know, you place it there on a Thursday, it gets loaded up on a Friday, the food distribution happens on Saturday, right? And so the logistics of, of getting it there, most churches are not set, you know, they don't have 18 wheelers that they can, you know, bring in. And so we've, we've done quite a few of those. Um, uh, you know, those are some of the things you asked about PPE. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just the amount of cloth face masks and, and plastic face shields um, that people have um, either, you know, the maker community has has put together or, you know, uh, other organizations have, um, you know, the shift in, in production and the shift in manufacturing that people have, have done in order to, to meet that need. Um, yeah, we've moved a, a lot of personal protective equipment. Again, trying to think about how do we do that regionally without you know, flying things and moving things across the country. Um, you know, we were talking about right. uh, we were talking about challenges, and one of the things that that always comes to mind for me when I think about what's challenging, um, Puerto Rico in 2017, uh, because of the island mm-hmm. environment, um, and you know. I think any type of crisis where we're dealing with long distances um, and diminished capacity, you know, in an island type environment, if we have something like the Cascadia uh, earthquake in the Pacific Northwest or even, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I, something less, you know, that causes an area to be kind of separated out for some reason, you know, disrupted. Right. If you can't get across a bridge or if you can't, um, and then the logistics become that much harder, right? You're, you're trying to figure out how do you, how do you serve a population that it has now been basically cut off? Um, so again, the challenges are, are typically more around how do we get things to a location or how do we find the right partners? Um, you know, we we're talking about capacity earlier. Um, 2017, the, the Harvey Irma Maria and the wildfires out west happened at a time when, you know, transportation markets were, were through the roof, right? Um, and the pandemic, you know, since June and July of last year after that kind of dip, again, through the roof. So finding that support, um, is, you know, it's always a challenge, but even more so, uh, whenever we're, we're at that natural point in the, or I don't know, unnatural point in, uh, in the transportation cycle. Right. So, so for this, where do you find the biggest challenge? I'm just curious. So let's say Puerto Rico, if they need water or food or any kind of materials, probably tents, things like that, is the challenge getting the material uh, contributed to you or gifted? Is it getting the capacity of transportation committed is it coordinating it with a local? Where, where's where's the, I'm thinking of the process, right? Where's the biggest bottleneck that you see? Yeah, so so we're not ever taking possession of materials. We're we're kind of acting as the the coordinator, right? So we're working with okay. nonprofits who have already figured out who they're going to serve on the ground and how they're going to distribute it. Um, but they're coming to us for that middle mile, or, or sometimes okay. the first and last mile. Um, so the challenge for us is always about logistics. It's always about figuring out how to move things from from A to B, um, or A to B to C to you know Z, whatever that looks like. Um, so would it be right to classify you guys as kind of like the three PL? 
as the three PL for humanitarian or any kind of crisis? Yeah, or four PL. <laughs> um, you know, okay. Okay. yeah, you know, four PL, five PL. It, you know, just where we end up in in that um, in that process, right? Because we're working with we're Got working it. with Got everybody, it. right? We're working with people who have assets and people right. who don't, and people who, you know, sometimes it's people with pickup trucks, honestly, you know, whatever it takes. (laughs) So, Kathy, you mentioned three challenges as examples, and you talked about the pandemic, Puerto Rico in 2017. What was the third challenge? Yeah, so it's actually one that gave us some great lessons to prepare for the pandemic, and that was the Ebola crisis in 2014 and 2015 um, in dealing with uh, getting personal protective equipment and supplies to West Africa. To that point, we had not really dealt with a lot of healthcare needs. Um, and so understanding, uh, the, the pieces that went into healthcare and just even some of the lingo around it, I, I think better prepared me personally to understand what those supply chains look like. Um, but also to know, okay, these are the questions we're going to have to ask our partners when they say, Hey, we want to move face shields or gloves or masks. You know, it just, <laughs> So much about uh, disaster relief and, you know, logistics in general really is about the lingo and knowing the right questions to ask. So I would say that, you know, of the challenges that we've had over our 15 years, uh, those three really stand out. So let me ask you a question about the Ebola one. Do you think that prepared you uh, a lot for the pandemic? I mean, they're totally different. One's in Africa, one's here, but you're both moving PPE and all that. Did it, did it help you prepare for this or is it just give you an idea of some of the terminology? Yeah, I think it, I think, uh, if anything, it's a mindset, right? right. Um, because Ebola, I mean, two very different diseases. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, Africa right now is looking at the verge of another Ebola uh, outbreak. You know, it constantly pops up. Um, but for us, you know, it's really, it was the terminology, like you said, but the outcomes and the potential, hmm. um, you know, just the death that's affiliated with Ebola and the death that we've experienced over the, the course of the pandemic. Um, I think looking at the stakes that are there and knowing, you know, this is really critical. It's, you know, yes, water and you know, nutrition, hydration and medical care are, are critical after any crisis, but right. there's always this sense that um, it can come from somewhere else, right? Very rarely do we have true supply capacity issues, right, like we've seen over the pandemic. And just knowing, hey, when we were dealing with Liberia and Sierra Leone in 2014 and 2015, it, at times, that was the only lifeline of personal protective equipment, right? And same over the course of the pandemic, getting face shields to schools so that they can, so they can safely reopen, or masks, or gloves, right. or hand sanitizer. I mean, some of the stuff that we did early on in the pandemic, moving hand sanitizer over to um, some of the tribal nations, uh, you know, you know the impact that that's having because you knew the outsized impact that COVID was having on that population. Uh, again, it, I think you know, maybe an emotional attachment to, to knowing what those stakes are that prepared me. Yeah. But it's interesting. You talk about, um, you know, scarcity of supply. Water is not, not really a scarce of supplies. Getting it there is a challenge. But yeah. I'm curious for 
both Ebola and the pandemic, uh, counterfeit masks and things like yeah. that were a challenge. Is that something that you guys had to face? Is that a, a challenge or was that a more of a recent issue? Uh, because we're not dealing with the sourcing of materials, we're relying on okay. organizations. Um, and most of the, the masks that we were dealing with moving were things that had come from U.S. domestic donors and they came from the maker community, right? So we weren't okay. dealing with N95. But you're right, that counterfeit supply, um, you know, we did have some conversations very early on with a consortium that was working to procure um and had they not had a person in Asia who could go and physically validate the materials and right. look at the, you know, look at the lines and, you know, make sure that the factories were real factories and not just, you know, something on paper, right? Um, there would have been zero confidence and that consortium would have been just totally out of luck like so many were, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. That's you need to have something on the ground in, in certain countries. Yeah. To, to validate because it's yeah, that's a challenge across so many different industries, um, chip industries as well, not just PPEs. It's it's right. a constant battle. Well, it, it you know, it's not just a disaster time, uh, uh, you know, consideration either. You know, you mentioned chips and, you know, chips are huge right now because you know, we're having all these sourcing challenges, getting chips and we literally mm -hmm. have manufacturing lines standing down. Um, right. But that's, you know, that's across the board, whether you can have someone who can go and validate, you know, I think we, we made a joke about visibility a little bit and thinking that, you know, we could solve the, the problems of the world if we just had visibility. But this is really a case where that visibility you know, physical vision on on something is a way to mitigate risk, right? And, and yeah, when yeah. you look across the the ways in which you know you can mitigate risk, hands on, you know the the lean principle of go and see. Absolutely, it, it's critical whether it's crisis or not. Yeah, yeah, especially if it's something that you have to check that you can't really test for. So it's called right. the credence attributes. This this affects. Everything from like uh, kosher and halal food to mm -hmm. sustainability. You can't test for child labor on a product. You have to have credence. Someone has to say yeah. yes. This was this was done correctly. And so having someone on the ground does that. But that's the right. hardest type of attribute to be able to check. Um, and then yeah. the person in the supply yeah. chain is usually responsible for it. Yeah, right. We are we are putting so much um, you know consideration or so much. Uh, I don't want to say pressure. But we've, we've required so much of modern supply chain managers, supply chain, you know, leaders that we have to worry about sustainability and we have to worry about, you know, credence. We have to worry about, um, sourcing. We have to worry about all of these things, let alone whether, you know, the numbers and the logistics and, uh, you know, all of that. Our jobs have grown exponentially over, you know, the past decade. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, a lot of different things. If you look at like, um, you know, uh, slave labor act, child labor stuff, yeah. anything, the dealing with the sourcing, it seems like it's falling more into the supply chain because right. they, they touch everything. So now it's sure. Right. We'll just have the supply chain check for that, for um, conflict minerals. And so it, it adds to that challenge. It, it does. And, 
you know, I was I was actually just reading something this morning about, you know, are we training supply chain managers? Do we have enough supply chain managers? You know, uh, it, we've we've talked about truck driver shortages for right. for a long time now, um, you know, but now we're starting to see the the call for you know supply chain managers, and they can't just be logisticians or procurement professionals who are now suddenly wearing a new hat. Um, right. But, but I also I also think that um, it, a lot of it comes to the metrics of what we're asking the supply chain managers to look at, right? Hmm. And those metrics can't just be something that supply chain professionals are worried about, just like, you know, sustainability or child labor, you know, sourcing considerations, right. conflict minerals can't just be something that supply chain professionals are worried about. Has to be everyone from the C-suite to the consumer to uh, to the investor, right? Because if right. you're all, if you're telling me my my metric is profitability, but then you want me to check for these fifteen other things, there's give and take, right? And I can't, yeah. you know, I can't meet my profit profit profitability metric if I have to worry about all of these other things. Not all the time, anyway, right? And so think right, about right. that in terms of of risk, um, you know, there's all this, you know, again, just in time versus just in case or just in time plus or, or whatever we're going to call the, you know, these new inventory strategies. Um, again, there has to be that understanding that something's got to give if we want to make sure that we have enough toilet paper on the shelves, you know, come the next pandemic. Right, right. And it's, it's also to the point that we're talking about is as supply chains take undertake all these other roles and things they have to check, they almost start becoming a compliance organization. Right. Um, and then it's sometimes you see a company where it's like their job to catch it. And, yeah. and it, it can't be. There's a whole separate legal organization for that. But I right. want to make a point about what you said for metrics, because that is so important. Um, I mean, when we started out, you know, go back 10, 15, 20 years, I don't want to date ourselves, but the <laughs> metrics for a, someone running a DC were pretty straightforward. Transportation were pretty straightforward. And as, uh, you know, supply chains became more sophisticated then you know, with a score model and all these other things, you start, you have to look broader. And now we're having these non-tangible things coming in, non-financial. So it's become an interesting exercise to say what metrics should a supply chain be evaluated on? What should they be looking at? Right. It's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether it is, um, you know, on time in full or perfect order every time or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. yes, you still have to get things to, to the consumer, but now you have to worry about how are you, how are you making sure that, right. you know, where those things are coming from and can they be rolled back through, you know, with sustainability and, and all yes. the other. Yes. All those other lenses, which are so yes. important, but really, you know, but you're not being evaluated for it, you know, yeah. so it's a challenge, exactly. but. Kathy, let me exactly. let me ask you one last big question. Um, sure. As of now, in the, in March, it looks like the pandemic is we're easing out, right? Uh, right. Uh, President Biden said he should have enough vaccine should be distributed by the end of May. Uh, we're seeing things slightly open up. Um, as you've gone through this pandemic, are there any things that you learned? Any silver linings? Uh, ways you've changed the way you operate um, during the pandemic that you think will give benefit post pandemic? What silver linings have you seen? Any? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. Um, the recognition that supply chain management is an essential industry, right? That's We're a good essential. 
Yeah. I mean, we're essential people. Um, and also I think the recognition that, um, a good portion of supply chain is physical and requires an in-person presence. Um, but I would also say, and you know, this is for other people to study. This is for, for the academic community here, Chris, and uh, yeah, yeah. that studying emergent supply chains like the vaccine supply chain, I think is going to hold a lot of lessons for how supply chains of the future are designed, right? Um, there were, I mean, hmm. we didn't talk much, as, we didn't talk much about the vaccine supply chain and the whole, you know, Operation Warp Speed or, you know, that, you know, build process to, to design the, um, to design the vaccine, which, you know, but <laughs> let me just say we didn't talk about that, but I think that there were some things that yeah, were yeah. done with a disconnect to how the product you know, we focused a lot on the product, but didn't focus a lot on the distribution right. of that. And so I think that studying that process and studying the distribution model that is being used in models, let me just say models because we have 55, yeah, right. um, uh, I think will give insights to, you know, PhD students for, for decades to come. I, I agree. And so some insight on that, because I've talked to some of the people from Operation Warp Speed and um, you can't discount what they did because you're exactly right no. it, on the production side, hedging risks, uh, making yeah. multiple bets. Um, yep. But what they didn't do and is uh, the last mile uh, once because they had to go to I forget how many jurisdictions that they went to because they were not. Right. Um, they, it wasn't they weren't permitted, but they were not asked and the individual states wanted to do it themselves. So it's really interesting, yeah. the federalism versus states and how it gets distributed <laughs> to include. It's not just states. It's also Indian reservations. It's uh, different, different jurisdictions. Right. And so uh, having worked yeah, the, with some the of the major cities. Right. And working with some of the states, they are torn um, with two things. One is efficiency, right? We're getting back to metrics, right? How fast yep. can I get needles in arms? But then the other one that's really important right now is equity. And no one can quite define it, um, yeah. but it has to be, you know, fairness and all these things wrapped up. And, and some of the states kind of tripped over themselves by pressure, by putting equity above efficiency. And some, some doses went to waste and we're balancing it out. And there's, you know, 50 states and, uh, you know, another hundred jurisdictions that are like little test pilots. And so I think you're exactly right. We're seeing a lot right. of things that are working well and that are not working well. And each of those jurisdictions are learning as they go. In, in Massachusetts, our rate, uh, the, the performance ratio is number of vaccines administered divided by number delivered. Yep. And about three weeks ago to a month ago, it was about 60%. And over the last three weeks, it's at like 86%. So I think there's a lot of learning going on right. at different levels. Um, but you're you're right. The the whole Warp Suite didn't get down to the last mile. And there's a question why they didn't get to that. But no, you're right. It's, it's really an interesting evolution of a supply chain. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm certain that other supply chains, you know, kind of, have been built in this fashion, but one of the things that seemed to be discounted was the demand for a product, right? And looking at it from a, a demand right. perspective. You know, that's a really good point. Um, a lot of the states, you can't register for it until you are qualified, and, and therefore right. the states are blind to what their demand that's is going right. to be. 
And it's like, so it's funny because a lot of the people in the vaccine business, they aren't supply chain people. And so if you go out to several hundred provider locations, you're going to have higher inventory as opposed to if you focus to two or three major centers. I mean, this is like supply chain 101, but they're focused on different things. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, silver lining. It's a it's a lesson to learn that we'll learn. Well, do you think you're gonna you you work from home since March, right? It's been about a year. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's been about a year. So will that continue for you, or do you see that changing? Uh, I will probably go back to the the office. There have been some other circumstances that have have kept me from home, but it, you know, pre pandemic, I traveled forty weeks a year. So um, I, I kind of like having you know sitting around looking at the same same things for a little bit ah. but i'm ready to i'm ready to get back out there and, and see friends mostly. this is the longest time i went without being in an airport i went like nine yeah. months without being in an airport it was it yeah. was crazy it's crazy oh, yeah my my um all of my rewards programs are like we miss you <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure post pandemic hopefully in the end of the spring early summer we'll get you back on the road again um kathy thank you so much I really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah, thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Okay, everyone, stay tuned for the Truckload Market Update with Dr. Enam Eu. Let's take a brief pause to talk about the FMIC Pulse Signal Report from DAT. Formerly part of Chainalytics, the Freight Market Intelligence Consortium, or FMIC, is now part of DAT Freight and Analytics. FMIC Pulse members receive monthly reports based on their subscription, which includes DAT IQ's proprietary forecasting approach to predicting the future of North American truckload markets. Are rates dropping? Is the market getting tighter? How should I approach next year's transportation budget? All of these questions and more are answered in the FMIC Pulse Signal Report. Visit dat.com slash Pulse Signal and fill out the form for a free limited view of the report. And become a member of FMIC to receive unlimited access. All right, let's get back to it. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for March 11, 2021. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are up 1%, spot rates up 10%, replacement rate is positive 5%. This means the new contract rates are about 5% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are flat, spot rates up 11%, and replacement rates are positive 6%. Finally, on the intermodal side, active rates are flat, spot rates are flat, and replacement rates are positive 3%. All right, so some interesting uh, developments, Enam. What do you think are the big takeaways for this week? We we are seeing the, the, the spot rates jumping up. I think it's primarily driven by the, the whole polar vortex. And uh, and nothing other than that seems to be driving that spike. Uh, we will continue to monitor, though. Okay, yeah, it seems like active rates are relatively flat or similar to what they were last time. And even to, 
you know, the the it, it, even the replacement rates don't seem that dramatically different. Yes, yes. I think from the previous, uh, I mean, from history, what we have seen is whenever we get to an inflection point, it just bounces around for some time. So I'm assuming that's what we are seeing. So last time it, active rates were flat and now it's plus one. So, we, you know, if things are going the way we expect it to, uh, we might see more bouncing around in this plus or minus one percent. But it looks like this is doesn't appear to be a repeat of the 2014-2015 polar vertex that lasted months and months and months causing disruptions. It seems like it was kind of isolated to February, early March. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. I think there are a few other external factors that, you know, we should definitely keep in mind, I think, which we didn't see before. One is the the whole vaccine rollouts, you know, right. happening, you know, quicker than we expected. So, you know, we, we don't know completely all the different factors, the markets that might come back w- along with it. So that that's something we just keep to mo- you know keep monitoring. No, that makes sense. It seems like, uh, as we discussed, the states have differing policies, how they open up. You down in Texas, you don't have to wear mas- masks anymore. And up here in New England, they're still mandating them. But it, it looks like the, the pace of vaccination has really increased. And that might mean um, opening up, which means more services spending faster than we had thought. We were saying like end of summer and maybe that'll be beginning of summer, end of spring. So what do you think the impact will be if suddenly restaurants are more open and sporting events are open? What do you think uh, the impact will be on the trucking market? I think I think there may be more planned for this from the company's perspective. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, as compared to how it was on the other end uh, when it went down. Uh, so, yeah. but definitely, I think this summer is going to be very interesting. I'm assuming we'll be at a higher demand than before. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see whether durables continue to be sold or if they, they peaked uh, during the pandemic and shifting, but we'll see. But anyway, I think that concludes this week's truck low market update. Thank you, Enam. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Freight Fine. The Freight Fine podcast is hosted by Dr. Enam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to the Freight Fine wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Freight Vine or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freight Vine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.